Good morning. I am not Pastor John. Even with my facial hair, I'm not Pastor Rick or Josh Phillips. So some of you may have heard uh, Pastor John has been feeling under the weather. He started feeling worse on Thursday. His wife, Sherry, was feeling ill earlier in the week. So as elders, he'd asked us maybe more than a year ago to have a sermon kind of in your back pocket, kind of ready to go in an emergency. So I uh, dutifully thought about preparing a sermon in a long time ago when he brought that up. But it was this email Thursday that really was the <laughs> fire that got me going to really prepare. So the topic today will be suffering. Hopefully my delivery won't feel too much like suffering for you. But the genesis of the sermon really is from a book that uh, was given me by Pastor Rick in 2019 called God's Grace and Your Suffering. And the author is David Polison. So what was going on in 2019 is my oldest son, Josiah, who's on the autism spectrum, had a lot of emotional ups and downs and things were really challenging. We were working with Pastor Rick and doing some counseling and so he gave us a book and I thought, all right, you know, we can, we can fix everything with this. Um, but it was a really challenging book and the author goes through the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, um, as he talks about suffering. So I'd encourage you that, so basically today we're gonna to be going through that hymn. So I'd encourage you in your bulletin to have that hymn open to you as we go through it. So typically Pastor John does what we call expositional preaching that he'll, he goes through the book of Mark. He's going through Psalm 119. So this will be different today. This will be an exception. Um, so let's come to God in prayer as we see the scripture that this hymn is built upon. Dear Father, we thank you for the ability to gather today. We thank you for the right to gather today. We ask that you speak to us through this hymn, um, that the scriptures that it's based on. We thank you that you are with us now, that you are with us in our suffering. We thank you that you are with us in the deep waters of suffering, deep waters that you have called us to. Thank you for refining us like gold in our suffering. Thank you that when we lean on you, put our trust in you, that you will never abandon or forsake us. Please be with the Schubert's health and speak to us today. In your name we pray, amen. So David Polison, as he starts off in this book, he has three sweeping truths as he describes them about suffering. So he first writes that God never establishes a no-fly zone keeping all problems away. We've heard about no-fly zones with the, with the war in Ukraine. And so maybe that we were promised something, you know, coming to Christ, that life would be easy and safe and our marriages would go better and parenting would go better and we would be prosperous if, if we were Christians. But rather, as we enter into Christianity, we are certain to have danger and hardship and turmoil and sometimes ill health and loss. We might be tempted to try to read God's favor or disfavor into our friends by assessing how troubled their, that person's life is. Uh, but we shouldn't do that. Um, the second sweeping truth is that joy and good gifts come from God's hand. Joy and good gifts come from God's hand. And most, most of us will see some good things in our life. We may have daily bread, maybe some feasts at times. We'll have a measure of good health. Friends, companions, we'll get to hear children's laughter. Vocation, resting after a hard, hard day of work maybe even restful sleep once in a while. But there are no guarantees of any particular earthly good. And then the, the third sweeping truth that he writes about is God speaks and acts 
through affliction. The God speaks and acts through affliction. C.S. Lewis writes, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So suffering can produce a genuine faith. And as you read the Psalms, as you go through afflictions, you read the Psalms differently and the Psalms become real. My only visual aid for today, I stole from, not steal, but I took from chemistry. And so this may kind of, this flask may kind of remind you of, of your high school chemistry class. And so suffering can be kind of like chemistry. You know, it's challenging being a high school chemistry teacher, I imagine, as far as they have to you know, wrestle these, these kids and uh, get them to learn and, and be safe with Bunsen burners and things that can explode. And so maybe a, an experiment that you did have, had to do with a litmus test or with pH paper. So my, maybe it was this, this thin strip of paper that you added a solution to, and if it turned red, um, it was an acid. If it turned blue, it was a base. So our suffering is kind of like chemistry in that as a litmus test, our suffering can reveal our faith. I know for me in 2020, and not being able to, to worship corporately, that really revealed some things about my faith. A lot of that wasn't positive. So how does the litmus test maybe reveal things for us in our, in our suffering? Um, suffering can also be a catalyst that it can help form our faith. You might remember in chemistry class that maybe, maybe you had a solution, you add something else to it, and it caused a chemical reaction. Maybe it became hotter, maybe it changed colors, maybe there was a precipitate that came out of it. You had the solid white crystals that came out. So suffering can also be a catalyst for us and help form our faith. So maybe think about, this could be a discussion with someone at lunch later today, what's the hardest thing that you're facing now? And what are, or what are you afraid that you might go through someday? Where are you struggling to make sense of things? And how can God use that as a catalyst to form your faith? We think back to Psalm 119, verse 67, that we um, read with Pastor John before. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So as we go through struggles, we're challenged to grow and keep God's word. Our dependency on the Lord is a fruit, and you can only bear that fruit uh, when you've lived through something hard. So who wrote this hymn? Who wrote How Firm a Foundation? If you have reading glasses, you can maybe see that it says John Rippon, but it turns out there's, there's some debate about who wrote this hymn. Um, it was first published in the 1700s uh, uh, in a hymnal in England, and John Rippon was the pastor of this church. But in this initial edition, it had the initial K as far as the author of this hymn. So we don't know if it was John Rippon or someone else in that church or someone else that he knew. But kind of having this hymn be anonymous invites us to make it your own hymn as we read it. And as we maybe think about our chemistry class in high school that maybe you suffered through, now wander down the hallway to your English class as we kind of dissect this hymn and think about the, the voice of this hymn. What's the point of view of this hymn? So hymns can have different perspectives, different points of view. Many hymns can be that we sing to God. Uh, the hymn, Be Thou My Vision, we're singing to God. Some hymns we sing about God to each other. In Amazing Grace, we sing how sweet a sound who saved a wretch like me, we're singing to each other. In O Come All Ye Faithful, we're singing as believers to each other. Some hymns we sing or speak to ourselves. In Be Still My Soul, we speak to ourselves. Psalm 103 is speaking to yourself. 
Arise, my soul, arise, is speaking to yourself. This hymn really has a unique perspective, a unique voice, in that God is talking directly to you in this hymn. In verses two through five, some hymn books will have these stanzas in quotation marks, that is God speaking directly to you. God is speaking directly into your significant suffering. And that's really, as, as someone who suffers, that's a primal need that we have is to hear from God. So let's break these down by stanzas. So this first stanza, the theme could be, listen well, listen well. So again, I encourage you maybe to have your bolt and open to read along with me. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? So some of this can be based on 2 Timothy 2.19, which reads, the firm foundation of God stands, having the seal, the Lord knows those who are his. So God knows you, you are his. And knowing that you are his, this truth makes a decisive difference when we go through suffering, we walk down hard roads. The third line there is a rhetorical question, what more can he say? Now, as parents, we often become pretty good at asking rhetorical questions. Things like, you're going out wearing that? You're going to come back at what time? So we become good at rhetorical questions. Now, there are some things that maybe we would want God to ask that we'd wish to ask God talk more about in the Bible. Maybe as we went through the book of Hebrews, we would want to you know, think maybe God could have spent another verse saying who the author was of Hebrews. Maybe we'd want to know how Jonah survived being in the belly of a fish for three days. Maybe wish God could have spoken more specifically about worship music. Maybe we wish he could have spoken more in the Bible about how, sovereign how his sovereign purposes dovetail with human responsibility. But this hymn is saying that God's words address all the defining existential questions. We are to listen well. There is nothing more that he needs to say. In the second line of the first stanza, we see the word saints, saints. You are mine, you belong to me. It's not that we'd say, boy, you know, that woman is a saint being married to David. But it's saying, it's not something that someone does. It's not some extraordinary individual spiritual achievement. It's ordinary people who belong to the most extraordinary Savior and Lord. When God has written his name on you, suffering qualitatively changes. Pain, loss, and weakness are no longer the end of the world. We see in Colossians 3.12 that God calls you his chosen ones, holy and beloved. In the last line of the first stanza, we see the words, for refuge. For refuge. You have taken refuge in the Lord. Now, being a refugee often has a negative connotation. With Hurricane Katrina in 2005, thousands of thousands of people were displaced from their homes and they maybe had nothing more than the clothes on their back. They really were refugees as far as they were very needy. But I guess when a public official called them refugees, that didn't go over very well. Um, in the movie Mrs. Doubtfire, when the protagonist, Robin Williams, gets displaced and moves into this other uh, apartment and it's decorated poorly and his wife, who's interior decorator, is looking at it and he says that he really decorated with a refugee motif. So being a refugee um, often has a negative connotation. But we really can be glad refugees. We can be happy refugees. We are needy and we have found all that we need and more that we could ever imagine in the Lord, the only true refuge. 
What's the opposite of being a refugee? It's what we often hear in the world, believe in yourself, be self-confident. Um, but it's often unsettling for us to need help. Dependency often doesn't feel very good in the process. In Psalm 28, we read how David, um, uh, just feeling very deep emotionally uh, in need. But the voice of need can later become the voice of joy. The cry for help can become a shout of gratitude. It's not pleasant to need help, but it's sheer joy to find help. We learn from Pastor Rick in Matthew 5 with the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit are blessed. So God uses significant suffering to teach us to need him, and when we need him, we find him. So the first stanza, we learn to listen well. The second stanza, the theme is, I am with you. I am with you. Fear not, I am with you, O oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen and help you and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. This is based on Isaiah 41.10, which reads pretty close to that stanza. Fear not, for I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So we see in the first line of the stanza different reactions we are to avoid in suffering. We are to avoid fear and we are to avoid dismay. And those are things that might be pretty natural for us, natural reactions initially with suffering. But problems arise when, distre when distress and apprehension become godless. When fear and dismay claim our thought life, our conversations, our future emotions and faith, that's a problem. Sometimes with suffering, we might try to retreat. Many of us try to do that in the pandemic, but the scripture never commends isolation as a strategy. Some people try to numb their pain with false solutions of food, maybe binge streaming, uh, recreation with alcohol and drugs. But as we pursue some of those endeavors, God may slide away into irrelevance or a vague afterthought. We often turn inward with suffering and become self-preoccupied. But there is a promise to embrace instead in the stanza. This promise to embrace of, I am with you, for I am your God. And we see this frequently in scripture where this is coupled together. We, we see this in Psalm 23 when David says, I will fear no evil when he's in the valley of the shadow of, of, of death. It's because God is with him. We can think about kind of reasons and responses, reasons and responses. And so response could be, fear not. And why can we have that response? We can have that response because of this reason, for I am with you. The response may be, be not dismayed, that we see in that first line. And the reason is, for I am your God. We see in other verses as well, Deuteronomy 31.8, the reason is, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And then our response is, do not fear, be dismayed. Philippians 4, 5, and 6, the reason is the Lord is near. Our response is, do not be anxious about anything. So we could come up with our own reasons and responses that we could fill in the blank because of what we learned from God. Because it is true that blank, I'm not afraid of blank. Because it's true that God is near, I'm not afraid of preaching. I'm not dismayed by blank because of blank. So how would you fill those in in your life? Can you say this and mean it? 
Maybe it's something you can wrestle with God, maybe wrestle through through small group and ask God to write what is true on your heart. So God is with us. And our third stanza, I am with you for a, for a purpose. I am with you for a purpose. Our third stanza, when through the deep waters, I call you to go. The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. This seems to be based on Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. So our troubles are envisioned here as deep waters, as flooding rivers. And that was meaningful to the Israelites that confronted the Red Sea. So God himself calls you into deep waters. And God sets a limit on your sorrows. We read that they shall not overflow. God is with you, actively bringing good from your troubles. And in the context of distressing events, God changes you. So your significant sufferings don't happen by accident. There's no random chance. There's no purposeless misery. Your life story may have a great deal of misery and heartache along the way, but in the end, in Christ, your story will have a happy ending. We know the end of the book in Revelation 21 and 22, there's life and joy and love and that they get the last say. And this was a challenge to me from David Polison's book that God isn't interested in offering you some cognitive perspective to get you through a rough patch. It isn't that just God will kind of change my view on, the, on things, but God is working with me, with me in the midst of, it, of the struggle so that you know him and trust him. Um, we, we read the word sorrow in the third line of that stanza. The old English version is woe. Woe is sorrow raised to the highest degree of pain. It also talks about our deepest distress, and those deepest distresses sound deeply distressing. So this woe can feel impossible. It devastates our earthly hopes, but God has set a boundary on our sufferings. That boundary may not be where we have set it, but God has set a boundary. First um, Peter 4.19 can be helpful in our sufferings, although sometimes it's misapplied. First Peter 4.19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, sometimes maybe this has been given to, to us uh, in maybe not a super compassionate way. You might feel like, well, I need to calmly detach myself from the suffering and I just need to kind of pull myself up by the bootstraps. Is God saying here that it doesn't really matter that you're suffering, that God's in control, so just keep on up with your quiet times and fulfill the responsibilities? Does God make the deep waters only maybe, you know, knee deep for us? Interestingly, the Greek word for entrust in this verse is the same word uh, that's used with Jesus when he, on the cross, says to commit my spirit. So Peter in this passage calls us in the pattern of Jesus' anguished faith on the cross. Some, some deep emotions as we go through sufferings. We also see this lived out in the Psalms, that David pleads with God. He's really asking for help. He's, he's playing in faith, he's not ranting. And so God is with you in these deepest distresses and the woes that God has you in these sufferings for a purpose, that God changes you. And the fourth stanza, the theme is, my loving purpose is your transformation. 
my loving purpose is your transformation. When through fiery trials your pathways shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your filth to consume and your gold to refine. This is also based on Isaiah 43, 2 and 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, which we read earlier in the service. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter uses it as an example of a furnace. So let's talk first about the filth to consume. The old English uh, word of filth is dross. So generally we've been talking about sufferings and sufferings is good to keep apart from sins. Um, what you do, what I do as far as sin is different from what happens to me as suffering. But as a new creation in Christ, you live essentially in a different relationship to sinfulness. Your sin now afflicts you. The filth of your blind spots and besetting sins no longer define or delight you. The sin that indwells you becomes a significant suffering. What once you instinctively loved now torments you. And maybe I may want to focus on the major kind of sins and say, well, you know, I didn't steal from the store. I didn't drive over school kids in my car. So I must be a pretty good person. But I may be forgetting some significant sins, forgetting that God, forgetting who God is and uh, proceeding as if life centers around me. Maybe sin is defensiveness and self-assertive pride. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's irritability. But don't ask my wife Heidi about that. Maybe it's being judgmental. Maybe complaining. Maybe immoral fantasies. Maybe obsessive concerns with money or food or entertainment. Maybe envy. And David Polson writes in his book that in fact, in Christ in order to sin, we kind of lapse into a temporary insanity or forgetfulness. You want to do it, but you don't really want to when you come to your senses. Like Paul, we wrestle doing what we don't want to do. And God can use our external sufferings and troubles to reveal the sins he is working on internally. In the last line of the fourth stanza, we read gold to refine. Gold to refine. David Polson uh, writes that God teaches us a couple things with refining gold. That in God's grace, he teaches us courage. This isn't the, just the, you know, fear not, just calm down. Everything will turn out okay so you can relax. Instead, God says, don't be afraid, I am with you. So because I am with you, be strong and courageous. Do you hear the difference between those two things? The deep waters haven't gone away. Courage means more than freedom from anxious feelings. It's endurance in the struggle. It's purpose, purposely abiding under what is hard and painful. It's considering others even when you don't feel good. Our life, like a chemistry class, is a holy experiment in God's hands, shaping you in the image of his son. And, and knowing that God is shaping us, we have a reason to persevere in fruitfulness. God also teaches us by his grace about wise love. Grace teaches you wise love. Our, fear, our fearless endurance and courage is for the purpose of wise love. Jesus combines two qualities that often don't go together, true compassion and life rearranging counsel. Often we might have people that try to be compassionate to us, 
They don't really have truth they can give to us. Some people try to give us counsel without compassion. 2 Corinthians 1.4 is a great takeaway verse from today. Um, our God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So the way God meets us in our need turns our faith and love into generalizable skills that meet others in their need. The comfort that I receive from God in my particular affliction becomes helpful to others in any affliction. That the stresses, the suffering that I went through in 2019 when I was comforted, I can use that comfort to comfort others. When I have stresses with work, I can use, and I, uh, God shows comfort to me, I can reach out to others. And God uses people as part of how he encourages. So my hope is that as God comforts you, you can reach out to others with his compassion. As God refines us, he is tender and truthful and he has high purposes. He profoundly comforts us as he strengthens us for endurance. He challenges us as sinners, humbles us, changes us as his sons and daughters, and as we are comforted, we can comfort others. God's loving purpose is our transformation. And our bonus fifth stanza, the theme is, I will never fail you. I will never fail you. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. This is what God tells us. We also see that God will never leave us or forsake us in Hebrews 13.5. In the stanza, God identifies these foes from hell. Um, God identifies Satan. And Satan knows that the wages of sin is death, and he wants us distracted. He wants people of the world distracted, um, so they will go down that road. We see this phrase, lean for repose, in the second line. Lean for repose on Jesus. If we do that, we will live. If we rely entirely and depend and actively place the weight of our life on Jesus, we are saved. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 also challenges us to trust in the Lord. There is a final promise in this last stanza that I will never fail you. Uh, God aims to make you free and fearless no matter what you have faced before, what you're facing now, or what you will face in the future. I will never forsake you. God's scripture often has promises and commands together. So when God tells us, I am with you, and don't be afraid, he tells us to be strong and courageous and that he will never forsake you. And this is challenging as we think about the future because we feel apprehension. Some evils don't go away. Shadows can multiply. Maybe like me, you feel you can wallpaper room with your list of worries. Um, but once you look for it, you can see um, that God will never fail you in different, other different parts of scripture. So not only do we see I will never forsake you, we see in other ways. When God writes that he is faithful, we can also see that God will never forsake us. When we read that his steadfast love endures forever, that's another way of saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. The Lord is my refuge. I will never leave you or forsake you. Our hymn takes God's simple, I will not, and says it five times for emphasis in the last line. So in, in our summary, the hymn in, in How Firm a Foundation, the point of view is God speaking to us directly. We are challenged to listen well 
that God answers the big questions of life in his sufficient word. We belong to him and are called saints. We can take happy refuge in him. Because he is with us and he is our God, we don't have to fear. He is with us in the deep waters to sanctify us. His loving purpose is to transform us and he will never forsake or abandon us. So I know my initial reaction to painful suffering is usually, why me? Why this? Why now? Why? But God doesn't offer advice from, from afar. He steps into your significant suffering. And as he comforts us and carries us, our questions can hopefully change. We turn from looking inward at ourselves and hopefully eventually can look up and look to God. And then we can ask different questions. Instead of asking, why me? We may be asking, why you, God? Why would you enter this evil world? Why would you go through loss and weakness and hardship and sorrow and death? And why would you do this for me? When we ask that question, why you, God, we can respond in praise like Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Do not forget any of the good things he does, who pardons all your iniquities and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies you with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Thank you, Father. And maybe eventually our questions can change even more to an almost unimaginable question. Instead of why me, the question might be, why not me? Why not this? Why not now? If my suffering could be a small nightlight in a dark world, why not me? If my suffering shows forth the Savior, why not me? If he will sanctify me, if he bears me in his arms, if my weakness demonstrates the power of God, if my honest struggle shows other strugglers how to land on their feet, why not me? Now you don't want to suffer, but you become willing to suffer. Like Jesus who said, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Like Jesus, our cries and tears will be heard by the Father. Like Jesus, you will learn obedience from what you suffer, sympathize with others' weaknesses, and display faith to the faithless. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for being with us in our past sufferings, our present sufferings, and our sufferings to come. Thank you for loving us in the deep waters of suffering and refining us closer to your image. Thank you for comforting us in our particular suffering so that we can cover those in any suffering. Give us grace, strength, and wisdom in this coming week that we could point others to you. In your name we pray, amen.